Archiver is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. Archiver, Kansas Voices of the Vietnam War, ends the way it begins with remembrances of faces and places from retired First Lieutenant Lou Eisenbrandt. Lou Eisenbrandt has never been afraid to talk about her experiences in Vietnam. In fact, she wrote an unflinching, compelling memoir of her time as a nurse during the war, Vietnam Nurse Mending and Remembering. But what resonates with everyone is Lou's ability to connect with people. Okay, I was born in uh Belleville, Illinois, which is where the hospital actually was. My hometown was Mascuta, Illinois, a town of about 2,500 at that time. And I was um, the oldest of five children in a blue-collar family. And I actually was had gone off to nursing school, and from there is where I joined the Army, and that was in Alton, Illinois. So all of this is within like a 50-mile radius. My first, after I did my basic training at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, in November of 1968, um, my first duty assignment was Fort Dix, New Jersey, and I was there from January through uh, August of 1969, and then I got orders for Vietnam, spent a month at home on leave, and left for Vietnam and spent the rest of my time in the service at the 91st Evac Hospital in Chu Lai, South Vietnam. It's the heat Lou remembers most on her first day in Vietnam, but on her last, the people she was leaving behind. The first day, uh, hot, 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 hot. We got off the plane and in... Um, Long Bend in the southern part of South Vietnam. And the wave of heat, because that's back in the days, there were no concourses to get you out of your plane. You simply stepped out the door. And I can just remember the overwhelming heat. On the return, the thing that stands out in my mind is that uh, there was, I had a gentleman, a doctor was taking me to the airport to catch a flight to go home, or as we would say, back to the world. And there, he took a picture of me by a Jeep. And in the background, you can see my hospital. And I did not really even discover this picture until uh, uh, three or four years ago. And I was surprised because most of the other pictures of me, I'm smiling. And this one, I'm just looking very sober. And I think I... I know what was going through my head was I was thinking I was thrilled that I had survived in one piece and had done some good, but it was hard to leave and leave these people that I'd gotten so close to during the course of the year. So I would say it's it's hard to pick one over the other, but they were very different experiences. But when I look at the pictures, you can certainly tell by the way I look, um, which is the beginning and which is the end. Talk a little bit about the people that it was hard to leave. Was it your fellow nurses and the doctors? Was it some of the um, residents of the village where you lived, where your hospital was located? It was mainly the doctors and nurses. Um, there were also patients that have stuck with me for a long time because of the seriousness of their injuries. And I think about them 
often not knowing whether they actually survived once they were evacuated out to Japan or Germany, which is usually where they sent uh, the wounded. But I think it's mostly the doctors and the nurses because you worked so closely with these people. We, we were Shifts were 12 hours on and 12 hours off. But particularly the nine months that I worked in the emergency room, you knew when you heard more than two helicopters come in bringing wounded, you dropped whatever you were doing and you would go and help because you knew that meant at least two wounded soldiers and perhaps quite a few more. And you really become close because you the only way you can, quote, forget the war, I guess I would say, uh, for a brief period of time is to hang out with, with everybody else. There were no um, videos, there was no Skype, there, was, there were no movie theaters, and so you just spent time with each other. Sometimes we just had to create our own entertainment. And sometimes that involved a, a little alcohol to get the creative juices flowing. But um, we had, where we were stationed, we, it was on a cliff overlooking the South China Sea, which was really a lovely, lovely spot, which is why I knew I had to go back. And I've been back to Vietnam four times since my uh, stint there with the Army. But we did have a little tiny beach at the bottom of a very rickety wooden stairs. And so we could just hang out on the beach a little bit, although I understand it blew away in a typhoon about three months after I left. Um, we actually, believe it or not, water skied, which I, most people don't associate with a war zone. And we would go out and ski if we had time um, in the middle of the day. The irony was that we, we could only ski until 1 o'clock because that's when the sharks came in, and I don't know how the sharks knew it was 1 o'clock. <laughs> but sure enough, about that time, you'd see the water moving, and you'd see what looked rather ominous coming at you, and so it was time to get in the boat and go back in. Like most Vietnam War nurses, Lou has clear-cut memories of her patients. Two in particular stay with her, because she wonders if their names are on the Vietnam War Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. The patient that really stays with me, um, there are two. One was a young man who was badly wounded with shrapnel, but we didn't realize the extent of his wound uh, when we they carried him in on a litter and placed him on the sawhorses, which is the way we uh, treated patients who were not ambulatory. And we always cut off all the clothes. There was no privacy in a war zone in an emergency room, so we could properly assess the, uh, the wounds. And when we went to roll him over onto his stomach so we could see what was the problem with his back, basically his back stayed on the litter. And as soon as we 
saw that it was there was some really severe damage, we put him back down, and he did survive to go to surgery and be evac'd back, I think, through Japan. I'm not can't remember specifically. And I think about him so often, almost every day, because I don't know if he made it, uh, if his name is one of the 58,000 plus on the wall. I don't, I just don't know what the final story was for him. And the other one that I really remember was when I came in country uh, and spent four days down in Long Bend before I got assigned to Chulai, I had met a young man uh, and we just, we played cards and sat around and talked and whatever, and we both got assigned to the same location, except that he was an infantry um, lieutenant. And he came in once to the hospital with some of his men who had gotten wounded. And the next time he came in, he was the wounded one. And he was, it didn't look terribly severe, but he had enough shrapnel wounds that I thought, there might be something more there. And I was not tending to him, but the nurse who was said to me as they wheeled him into the OR, you know, he's probably gonna lose both of his legs. That's the only time during my year there that I actually had to walk out of the emergency room and collect my thoughts. And it's because even though it had only been four days, we had what I felt was like a little personal connection. And, um, I, I did follow up and check on him uh, when he got back to the States in the hospital, and uh, he still had his legs, but he was not, they were not functioning very well. That's, that must be a hard memory to live with. It is, and, and it, it goes along with, especially the first patient, um, that's a frustration for me when I visit Washington, D.C., and I've been there many times, to walk the wall and wonder how many of those names were a body that came through my emergency room. Uh, how many um, I held their hands and said, you're gonna be all right. Sometimes I believed that, sometimes I didn't believe that, but I said it anyway. And I just don't know how many uh, people that I came in contact with are, are now listed on the wall in DC. eight women whose names are on the wall and one of them the only one killed by direct enemy uh, fire was Sharon Lane and she was working on the Vietnamese ward when a rocket hit the hospital and killed her so we did obviously take precautions when that you know the rocket attacks came but you could get as get as much um, into as much trouble by with snipers coming in at night after it was dark and there was concertina wire all the way around the compound and they'd be snipping it and coming in with their AK-47s to kill people so it was it was a little of everything but um, we did take several several rocket nights of rocket fire what was your first experience with the rocket fire like running into the bunker? Did you think, this is it, that's the end? 
I don't think I that that was my thought process. I, actually, the immediate process was, I don't want to go in there because the rats live in that. And the first person in had to chase out the rats because that's where <laughs> the rats lived was in the bunker. Um, I think it was not. You think about yourself, but I think you just think about everybody. You say, "Oh my gosh, this is you know, this is not what we want to do." You also came away from Vietnam with uh, with the start of what would become your Parkinson's, and you blame the Agent Orange for that. Can you tell us where you would have encountered the Agent Orange? The the sad thing about Agent Orange is it just permeated everything. So when when guys came in in the emergency room and the first thing we did was cut off their clothes, if they had any Agent Orange on them, and many of them did, it filled the air. Um, it, as a matter of fact, it is still in the dirt, in the soil, and in the water in Vietnam. There are groups that have been working since the war to get rid of it. I, I think the, the important thing to remember that is, is the government needs to be help, held accountable. Uh, I mean, I, I can pretty much say that's where my Parkinson's came from because one of the big factors in Parkinson's is exposure to herbicides and pesticides, which is why a lot of farmers have Parkinson's. Does it make you angry or sad yeah. to think about that? Yeah, it makes, it makes me angry. Um, I, I have to admit, as a result of Agent Orange, I've, I got involved with a few things that I wouldn't have gotten involved with, but I'd gladly give my Parkinson's back or give it to somebody else if they'd like to have it for a while. Um, accountability is important, and that's why I fought to, to get some uh, reimbursement for my time there, just because I felt you can't, you need to tell the, the, the powers that be that if you're putting things down or you're doing things in it, whether it's war or whatever it is, you need to have to be accountable for what the results that are going to come as a result of that. And that's why I have continued to talk about that because I think it's important. Despite her medical condition, Lou feels connected to the country of Vietnam and has returned four times. She was one of the first American tourists to visit. Four trips back to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Why have you gone back so much? Uh, first of all, it's a beautiful country. I love Vietnam. The people are very warm and loving, very friendly, and very, uh, particularly the older people, uh, very happy that the Americans were there. The, the real reason that I went back the first time was that I was just curious. Our hospital was really in a very pretty setting, up on a cliff overlooking the sea, and I wanted to see what had happened to the hospital. And at the time, um, when I started thinking about doing that, I was working as a, a travel agent. And they, we had lifted our embargo uh, on Vietnam, so they were encouraging tourism. So I was able to go with a group of 10 to Vietnam, and they all, the other Everybody knew that one amongst us was a nurse, and but so it was interesting when we all gathered in Chicago to get on the the JAL uh, plane. 
everybody's saying, do you suppose it's her? Do you suppose it's her? Which I thought was really funny. And they were very protective of me. I mean, everybody, every time we did something, they'd say, are you okay? Are you okay? Um, so that, uh, that's, that was one. I just went back out of curiosity. Well, we didn't get to where my hospital had been that in 94. So I went on my own with a girlfriend in 1996, and we did get back to where the hospital had been. So that, I think, was probably part of this, what they call closure or something. Uh, and then the, the two trips after that, one was uh, through an international legal organization that my husband's part of, and we visited uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Northern Thailand, and Myanmar. And so that was quite the different trip because that was staying in very fine hotels. And then the last trip, uh, was actually a, a situation that I found myself in, which I didn't expect to. There's a, a college in southern Missouri called College of the Ozarks, mm -hmm. and they're very high on veterans. And starting in 2009, they would take um, 12 vets, match them with 12 students, and go to wherever they had served in a war. Well, they up until 2014, they were only going to World War II sites. And they took their first trip to Vietnam in 2014, and somebody told me about it, and I sent a note, and they were thrilled because I was the first nurse uh, to that point, and there were two women, but they were two wax, I think, from World War II that had gone earlier, and that was the extent of it. And I don't think since then that another woman has gone. the site where the hospital once stood? You try to picture what it looked like because as a result of the year passage of years and the, the hospital is gone. There's no, there was no ruins. There's no anything left. Um, the Vietnamese are very good at recycling things. Um, we even saw places where they cut um, two-foot squares out of the runways and use them to make patios in their for their homes. How about the people? Do they do you talk to them about the time when you were there? What are their reactions to you as an American? The Vietnamese people, like I said, in general, very grateful for the Americans uh, during the war. You have to remember, too, that this has been 50 years ago. And so the younger generations, uh, unfortunately not unlike some of the younger folks, uh, kids in, in America, don't know that much about the war. And so you still see older individuals with wounds and things left from the war. But the people have, were most gracious. And I think the, the, the scars and things of that sort will gradually be fading away just because the people who experienced it are fading away. They put the blame on the vets, and I think we need to honor the veterans more and not try to blame them for basically what was their job to do. Thank you. You're welcome. This has been terrific, Lou. Thank you so much. 
After Lou's tour of duty in Vietnam, she returned to the United States where she met and married her husband Jim and started a family. She did not go back to nursing. Instead, Lou led childbirth classes, taught cooking, and worked as a travel agent. She is Chair Emerita of the Board for Turning Point and serves on the board of the Veterans Voices Writing Project. But most people in Kansas City know Lou Eisenbrandt for her memoir, Vietnam Nurse, Mending and Remembering, and she has spoken to many groups in the Kansas City area about her book and wartime experiences. Archiver, Kansas Voices of the Vietnam War, is produced by Sam Zeff and with Matt Hodap at Fountain City Frequency. Archiver is produced in conjunction with Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer and made possible with a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. I'm Katie Stover. Thanks for listening to this special Archiver Vietnam series. The podcast will be back with regular host Sam Zeff and a brand new season in the next few months. <laughs>